If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome back to our special podcast series, delving into everything you wanted to know about some of history's biggest subjects. For this week's episode, we're covering the history of the American Civil Rights Movement, a subject that's been much in the headlines recently, following the Black Lives Matter protests that have taken place around the world. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Kevin Gaines. Welcome to the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask series. Today we're going to be exploring the US civil rights movement, which is a subject that's obviously made global headlines in recent weeks with the ongoing protests in cities around the United States and the world. I'm delighted to be able to speak to Kevin Gaines, who's Julian Bond Professor of Civil Rights and Social Justice at the University of Virginia, and a historian, author and lecturer. The format will be the same as in previous instalments. We'll explore the most popular search queries put to Google, along with some reader questions submitted on social media. Firstly, I suppose, very broadly, what do we mean when we talk about the American civil rights movement? Well, during the 1950s and 1960s, Historians talk about the modern civil rights movement, and when we consider its impact, and the uh, some historians think that it's it's the most impactful event in U.S. history in the 20th century, uh, we have to consider that it affected uh, massive transformations of American society. Uh, the civil rights movement ended state-sanctioned racial discrimination in the U.S. South. And this was uh, particularly the case in the former states of the uh, Confederacy. And Americans of all backgrounds took part in the movement, but its rank and file was made up mostly of African Americans. Uh, and and African Americans uh, uh, of working class status, men and women, in the South. And they used, uh, these protesters used nonviolent direct action protests. They marched, uh, they protested in a number of ways. They practiced nonviolent civil disobedience. They filled jails. And the purpose of their, their efforts was to expose the brutality of racial injustice to the nation and, uh, and to the world. And so these people who marched for freedom uh, had a significant impact at moments in arousing the conscience of, of many of their fellow Americans. And it's, it's really crucial to remember that they often protested 
or, or simply just tried to exercise their rights in the face of tremendous hostility, uh, hostile white mobs, police violence, and, and vigilante terror. And um, these images through newspapers and newsreel footage of, of brutality that were waged by uh, police and segregationists against nonviolent demonstrators who were basically demanding uh, human rights generated national and international headlines. So in a sense, we can talk about the civil rights movement uh, as a landmark event in American history, modern American history, but also a movement that had an international scope and significance as well. And we'll get back onto the international dimension in a bit. But firstly, I suppose, to what extent do we need to understand the American Civil War in order to make sense of this specific story? Well, the Civil War and, uh, and with it, the emancipation of four million enslaved black people in the South posed questions about the citizenship rights and status of African-Americans that are still relevant today. Um, and the Reconstruction era following the Civil War and emancipation was a crucial context uh, for the civil rights movement. And Reconstruction was the political process by which the federal government readmitted the 11 states of the former Confederacy to the United States. And this was a period, Reconstruction was a period of revolutionary change for African Americans and and the South and and the United States. Uh, Reconstruction lasted roughly between 1865 and the the, uh, late 1870s. And African Americans played a, a substantial part in the destruction of U.S. slavery and the preservation of the Union. Uh, An example of that is 200,000 African Americans served with the Union Army, and many enslaved uh, black people fled the plantations, which uh, fatally weakened the Confederate war effort. So during Reconstruction, Congress passed landmark federal civil rights legislation, and there are three amendments to the Constitution that are uh, crucial here. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment guaranteed national citizenship rights for African-American men and women, and it made uh, citizenship of the United States uh, a a national phenomenon for the first time. And and then the 15th uh, Amendment extended the suffrage to black men. And so during Reconstruction, newly enfranchised African Americans were able to elect black men to political offices at the local, state, and federal level. And historians view Reconstruction as a, a brief experiment in interracial democracy. Uh, in which blacks held and shared political power alongside whites in the South. And it was brief because an alliance of white landowners and politicians overthrew Reconstruction state governments to establish white dominance. And, And whites used violence to terrorize black people and prevent them from voting or defending their rights. And Southern states changed the laws to enforce racial segregation and to strip African-American men of the right to vote. So insofar as the modern civil rights movement sought to restore the political and civil rights black people had briefly possessed during Reconstruction, some referred to the civil rights movement as the second Reconstruction. Moving on to some of the ways in which um, black people were oppressed Um, particularly in this period, one of the most searched Google terms is what were the Jim Crow laws? I wondered if you could talk through those a bit. 
Well, Jim Crow is the, the name that historians use to describe a system of state laws throughout the South. Uh, and so when we talk about Jim Crow segregation, we're talking about a regime of de jure or uh, by law, legal racial discrimination uh, throughout the South. And this system lasted for almost a century from the end of Reconstruction, uh, roughly speaking, 1877, uh, the, the early 1880s, to the passage of federal civil rights and voting rights legislation uh, in 1965. So uh, a short century, but, uh, but almost 100 years. So Jim Crow is uh, the term that was commonly used for the system of rigidly enforced laws and customs that required the absolute separation of blacks and whites in the South's public life. And this included public schools and universities. It also included the denial of of voting rights to black people uh, and the exclusion of black people from, from holding public offices. And the control of whites of all aspects of society uh, extended to the economy as well, with African Americans confined to, you know, um, low and 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 sometimes uh, non-paying uh, uh, agricultural, domestic, and and other menial jobs. And uh, this sort of confining African Americans to agricultural coerced labor or menial labor, uh, as uh, say uh, domestic workers throughout the South basically preserved urban and skilled jobs for whites only. And this is, it started out as a sort of a patchwork system of state laws that segregated, uh, say, uh, uh, transportation uh, and and other aspects of public life. But this patchwork was codified into a national system, basically the law of the land, by the Supreme Court decision in 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, And so the Supreme Court gave legal sanction to segregation laws with its doctrine of separate but equal. Uh, And in Plessy, the court ruled that Southern laws that required separate uh, whites only, in this case, railroad cars, uh, did not violate the Constitution. So another crucial aspect of Jim Crow segregation was the cultural dimension. Most whites in the South were taught the ideology of white supremacy and black inferiority from an early age. And they heard this from all segments of Southern society, from uh, religious leaders, from the press, from politicians, from their parents. And there was very little uh, in the way of uh, dissent or alternative points of view to this ideology of white supremacy. The other part of Jim Crow segregation, which is absolutely crucial, how do you enforce such a system? Uh, and this was the era of lynching. And lynching is the term uh, for these uh, horrific extrajudicial acts of mob violence against black people. And between the 1880s and the 1920s, there were some 4,000 recorded lynchings. Uh, And you you still had lynching as a problem within uh, American life going well into the 20th century, uh, into the 1950s, for example. So for African-Americans living under Jim Crow in the South, 
And especially in the Deep South, states like Mississippi, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Louisiana, you had the constant threat of violence. And, and for many African-Americans, fear and defenselessness were, were constant realities. It's important to add to that that African-Americans fought back against Jim Crow. Um, black people in the North were often a big part of this fight since they had uh, somewhat greater freedom to, uh, to resist than did their uh, fellow uh, African-Americans in the South. Uh, black people in the North faced racism, but they, were, they, they could speak out against the violence and tyranny of Jim Crow in the South. And, and so many African-Americans uh, condemned and fought back against the abuses of Jim Crow and lynching through African-American-owned newspapers, through civil rights organizations, uh, such as the NAACP. And the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was based in the North, in New York City, but it also had many branches, uh, branch offices in the South, mostly in, in southern cities and towns. And the NAACP had a monthly journal, The Crisis, uh, and The Crisis was... Uh, 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 looked forward to by uh, many African-Americans, North and South. Uh, It provided news and information about what African-Americans were doing uh, to to struggle for equality. And the crisis really uh, filled a major need because unlike the the white-controlled press, uh, the crisis and other black newspapers were much more respectful and even-handed in their coverage of African Americans and civil rights. You could talk about the organized resistance to Jim Crow led by organizations like the NAACP, but black people themselves also fought back against Jim Crow. And, and the main way they did this was by leaving the South by the hundreds of thousands over the 1920s, 30s, and 40s uh, through migration out of uh, the Jim Crow South to northern industrial cities. And over the course of the 20th century, this great migration amounted to millions of African Americans. So by migrating to northern cities, um, blacks achieved a measure of political and social progress. But even in the North, they encountered discrimination in employment and housing, and sometimes violence as well. You know, there were uh, race riots in uh, cities like East St. Louis in 1917. Uh, There was a race riot in Chicago in 1919. You had uh, what was called the Red Summer of 1919, in which there were uh, anti-black race riots all over the country, in the South, but in um, northern and um, sort of uh, border uh, state areas uh, like, uh, oh, well, I mean, Washington, D.C. There was another major uh, race riot in Washington, D.C., and uh, maybe the largest one was in Chicago. So um, the North was by no means a promised land for southern black migrants, but still... By migrating to northern cities, African-Americans achieved uh, political and social progress. uh, And, and, you know, even though they had uh, also faced discrimination in in housing and and in employment. 
And some of the other ways that African-Americans were able to help themselves was to take advantage of these developments in in world affairs. So the national emergency of, of foreign wars, World War I and World War II, provided crucial opportunities for African-Americans uh, demands for quality. Uh, and so African-Americans served in these wars and they, um, in, during World War II especially, they worked in defense industries. And these are sort of engines of, of, of social progress and also um, provide an opportunity for demands for civil rights and full citizenship. Now, there's also global influences in the fight against Jim Crow as well. And you, uh, you, know, you, you have to understand that African-Americans are struggling for civil rights in the United States at the same time. Um, colonized peoples are, uh, in Africa and Asia are fighting for uh, liberation from uh, uh, colonial rule. And so um, African-American civil rights activists during World War II are very much influenced by Gandhian-inspired uh, ideals and tactics of nonviolent civil disobedience. And they are conducting sit-in protests to desegregate restaurants in northern cities. And so the example of Gandhian nonviolence would be important and instrumental for many of the civil rights movement's demonstrations. One of the questions that we've been asked um, via social media is from Emma Barrow, who asks, why was racism in the south of the U.S. so much worse than in the north? Well, that's a really great question, and it's a question that there's no uh, very uh, short or easy answer to. Um, and, and Emma started out by uh, adding to that question uh, a reference to the Civil War. Um, and and I, it, I think it, it's actually useful to think of the Civil War uh, as, and, and the struggle over slavery as uh, setting the tone for, for the answer for this question. You know, the southern states uh, were slave states, and they seceded from the Union and started the Civil War because uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party uh, wanted to prevent the westward expansion of slavery. Um, mind you, they didn't want to abolish slavery, but um, so they, the, the, the southern states... Uh, saw that as a threat, uh, and and they uh, they uh, committed uh, uh, declared uh, war and rebellion against the uh, the United States, and they they did this because they could not imagine life without slavery. The South's entire economy, politics, and culture were shaped by slavery and white supremacy, and even though the South lost the Civil War, that ideology uh, slavery was gone, but the ideology of white supremacy. Uh, remained. It's persisted over time, despite, you know, uh, obvious challenges by African Americans. And the legacy of slavery and white supremacy still, to a great extent, shapes U.S. politics. But just to get back to the differences between the North and the South, under Jim Crow, the South enforced segregation and racial discrimination with laws. And the South the Jim Crow South was basically a closed society for black people. The North was not free of racism. Uh, as I said, you know, there was discrimination in the labor market and in housing. 
But the North was a more open society for black people. Black men and women could get an education. They could, they could attend public universities. Black men who didn't have an education could find work in industrial jobs in, in northern cities like Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Los Angeles, etc. Their children could attend decent public schools, sometimes attend college. Uh, and above all, in the North, African-Americans could vote and they began to elect black men as re representatives in Congress during the late 1920s or from the, from the late 20s onward. So again, it, this is a complicated issue. The North was by no means free of racism. And, you know, I should really uh, point out that police brutality was a serious problem for African-Americans in these northern cities. City governments were ruled by white leaders for white people. Still, again, African-Americans in the North made real educational and social progress in the decades leading to the civil rights movement, while these opportunities mostly did not exist in, in the Deep South. Now, it's important to emphasize also that Northern cities were rigidly segregated. Um, blacks and whites lived separate lives. They rarely socialized together. So segregation meant that most Northern whites lacked direct contact with African-Americans. Uh, maybe there was contact in the workplace, but by and large, Northern whites learned about racism through the mass media. They learned demeaning ideas and images of white people, uh, 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 notions of white racism, demeaning notions of black people from their family members and neighbors. They, they, uh, they absorbed anti-black racial stereotypes in Hollywood films and other sources. Um, and so white prejudice and structural racism reinforced each other, even among Northern whites. And all of this was reinforced by discriminatory federal housing loan programs and real estate agents and banks and white homeowners who made sure that Northern blacks, even if they could afford it, could not live wherever they wanted. They could not live in uh, what uh, were maintained as all white neighborhoods. So then as now, spatial segregation in cities made African-Americans vulnerable to police brutality. Another crucial difference between the North and the South uh, was that the South had many outspoken political supporters of segregation. Uh, and so one example of this was Governor George Wallace of Alabama, uh, a really notorious example. Um, Wallace is, is famous for a number of things. In 1963, he declared in his inaugural address as governor of Alabama uh, a famous statement, which became just a, a slogan, fighting words for many white Southerners. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And so there are many other Southern leaders who are openly racist, openly segregationist like Wallace. Uh, and you also had in the South law enforcement uh, officials who were willing to use naked violence against peaceful protesters. And Alabama had a couple of these, uh, the police commissioner Bull Connor in Birmingham, Alabama, and Sheriff Jim Clark uh, in Selma, Alabama. And, and both of them enforced uh, Wallace's anti-black rhetoric. And finally, the tone of leadership set by Wallace and others uh, incited vigilante violence by a, 
uh, notorious domestic terror organization, the Ku Klux Klan. And members of the Klan were responsible for uh, perhaps the most despicable crime of the civil rights era, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, Uh, in 1963. And this happened almost a month after the March on Washington. And in this bombing, four girls were killed and several others maimed while attending Sunday school. Now, what's ironic about Wallace, Wallace is is almost the figurehead. Uh, He's a a Southern leader, representative of the Jim Crow South, but he also has these national political uh, ambitions. And so he parlayed his notoriety and his open demagoguery and racism into pursuit for national office. And Wallace ran for the presidency several times as an independent, and he actually won the votes of many northern whites in 1968. Wallace was paralyzed after he was shot while he was running for president in 1972. And uh, he later apologized to African Americans in Alabama for the pain that he had caused them. So that's a, a, a lengthy uh, response to, uh, to Emma's question, but uh, I, I think you know, all of that is, is, are, are really important for understanding the differences between the North and the South. A key figure in this story is obviously Martin Luther King. We've had a few questions about, about him and his life. Uh, one of them is from Carlo Boniolo, who asks, what is Martin Luther King's history and background, and how did he rise to prominence? Well, um, Dr. King was, was vaulted to national and international uh, fame by the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. In Montgomery, Alabama, the, the, the public transportation system was segregated, and local activists had been trying to organize a movement to challenge that segregation for quite some time. And their efforts gained traction in 1955 with the arrest of Rosa Parks, uh, who was uh, a longtime activist, member of the NAACP. Rosa Parks refused to, to give up her seat on the, the bus. The uh, segregation laws in public transportation in Alabama required African Americans to either sit in the back of the bus or to give up their seats when no other seats were available and white people uh, wanted to to ride the bus. So they were forced to give up their seats to whites, and Rosa Parks refused to do that. So you have this organization, the Montgomery Improvement Association, uh, led by longtime civil rights activists. And uh, after Rosa Parks' arrest, they uh, came to Dr. King, uh, who was then a 26-year-old Baptist minister, to lead the movement. And Dr. King, uh, well, just to, just to back up a little bit, he was born in Atlanta, and Dr. King was the privileged son and grandson of Baptist ministers. Uh, he graduated from Morehouse College, which was a historically black university that was founded by American church missionaries in the, uh, after emancipation in the late 19th century. And he, uh, he earned advanced degrees in divinity in northern universities. Uh, one of those universities was Boston University. And so during his years in Boston, he met and married uh, Coretta Scott. And Coretta Scott King, of course, 
was an important civil rights leader uh, in her own right uh, as well. So Dr. King uh, became the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. And I'm sure, you know, uh, this bookish uh, preacher and intellectual imagined a quiet life of, of ministerial study and service. But all that changed when the Montgomery uh, uh, movement leaders came to Dr. King and, and asked him to lead the movement. And Dr. King also was assisted as a, a, a then a novice uh, civil rights activist by another prominent figure in the modern civil rights movement, the civil rights and peace activist Bayard Rustin. So Rustin joined King in Montgomery as his lead advisor, and Rustin's role was to school King in the philosophy and tactics of nonviolence uh, during the Montgomery campaign. And, you know, we think of Dr. King as this eloquent uh, 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 nonviolent spokesman, someone who was able to articulate the philosophy of nonviolence for uh, fellow activists and, uh, and the world. But Dr. King, like many African-Americans who grew up in the, in the Jim Crow South, initially kept guns to protect their homes and families because, you know, violence was uh, a fact of life, an endemic in the Jim Crow South. And so, you know, many African-Americans, they're not, you know, sort of boasting the fact publicly, but they're, you know, they, they have their arsenals uh, because who knows uh, um, when they might be needed. So Rustin persuaded King to disarm and to embrace the Gandhian philosophy of nonviolence. And the bus boycott Certainly, and Dr. King endured some trials. Dr. King's house was bombed during uh, the the boycott, which lasted for for over a year. African-Americans of all walks of life show a tremendous unity in their refusal to patronize the segregated bus system. They stayed off the buses for for nearly a year. Uh, African-Americans of all walks of life refused to patronize patronize the segregated bus system. And after that, the authorities, uh, the city authorities uh, and the bus system ended this demeaning arrangement that required African-Americans to ride in the back of the bus and to yield their seats to whites. Dr. King was, uh, I mean, you know, I think as we all know, he was an extraordinary figure, uh, very intellectual, but also um, a brilliant speaker with the, uh, the eloquence of uh, the black folk preacher. And Dr. King was a dedicated activist whose vision of struggle grew more progressive, uh, even more radical uh, with time. And I mean, how, how much did he influence the civil rights uh, movement and the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Or are there other people who you think deserve as much recognition? Well, I think it, it, it's, it's worth um, spending time to discuss King's significance and his importance. He certainly became the widely acknowledged leading spokesman of the movement after his nationally televised I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington in 1963. He was certainly well known among uh, leaders of the civil rights movement. When Dr. King appeared on the scene, leading the Montgomery movement, you know, there were a number of 
well-established civil rights organizations and well-established leaders, some of whom saw Dr. King as an upstart. I'll give you an example. The congressman, the African-American congressman, Adam Clayton Powell, who was a longtime congressman of African-Americans in Harlem, was probably the most powerful black man in the United States due to his, uh, you know, being uh, quite well established within the American political system. Adam Clayton Powell certainly resented uh, Dr. King's emergence as this prominent leader. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ego involved in that. Um, and, you know, there were other civil rights leaders who were well-established. Roy Wilkins, the executive director of the NAACP, you know, who who um, was not exactly greeting Dr. King with, with open arms. But eventually, for the sake of unity, um, these prominent civil rights leaders had to acknowledge that Dr. King was truly uh, an extraordinary uh, leader and spokesman who, who was very gifted in articulating the goals of the civil rights movement and aligning those goals with traditional uh, American ideals of freedom and the American dream. So Dr. King becomes this preeminent spokesman in 1963. And before that, he led the mass demonstrations in Birmingham that had, uh, had shook the nation and the world. Um, Dr. King was jailed during the Birmingham campaign, which was a campaign to basically desegregate public life and public accommodations in that city and to, to um, secure for African-Americans full and unfettered access to public life. They could shop and um, go to restaurants and, you know, stay in hotels and, you know, and not have any racial restrictions on them. So Dr. King was jailed in Birmingham and he wrote the famous letter from a Birmingham jail uh, on scraps of paper. Uh, That document uh, is now a classic. Dr. King demanded freedom now and he criticized fellow ministers, so-called white moderates in the South, who objected to Dr. King and the movement's protest tactics. So Dr. King was certainly important for um, the the major civil rights reforms um, as basically the figurehead and main spokesman of of the movement. Uh, And the Civil Rights Act and and the Voting Rights Act, of course, were, were just major transformative achievements for the movement. Dr. King won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, and in his acceptance speech, he expressed gratitude for the honor, but he also emphasized that his accomplishments were made possible by the sacrifice and participation of many. Um, the, the, The challenge that Dr. King and the movement faced was that although those civil rights and voting rights reforms, which were long overdue, and the product of years of struggle and sacrifice in in which many people lost their lives, uh, were beaten, you know, um, you know, in, 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 in a sense, you know, some had their lives destroyed. So it's just an, an enormous toll to gain those reforms. But the, the reality was that those reforms failed to address the largely economic and social plight 
of many African-Americans, especially in the urban north, uh, who faced high unemployment, overcrowded and, and, and substandard housing, failing schools, uh, and, and also police brutality. And so before Dr. King was assassinated, he tried to address poverty and economic inequality with the Poor People's Campaign. And here, Dr. King and his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, planned another march on Washington in which poor people of all races demanded economic justice. And of course, after his assassination, the, uh, all the momentum and the energy of the Poor People's Campaign uh, just, just, uh, just, you know, went away. It was just, it was just an incredibly demoralizing uh, event for the movement. Now, you asked how did Dr. King influence the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, and it's probably useful to 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 talk to say a little bit about what the Civil Rights Act of 1964 accomplished. Um, and I, you know, I guess I should say that Dr. King had a great deal of influence, but you know, there were many other prominent voices of African-American leadership and other organizations that played an important role in the movement's success. We remember Dr. King because he gave the keynote speech at the March on Washington, but before him, you had a whole series of civil rights leaders and activists who, you know, spoke eloquently about uh, the Civil Rights Bill and how it was time and long overdue um, going on, well, really, a hundred years after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation for the nation to make good on the uh, the civil rights amendments that had been passed during Reconstruction. So I'll, I, I can say a bit about some of these other prominent civil rights leaders who, who, uh, whose contributions we shouldn't forget. But just let me briefly um, talk about the impact of the Civil Rights Act. And this was the most, and, and I should say the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because there are numerous civil rights acts that were passed by Congress. Uh, the first one passed during Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So you see why we have to you know, specify the, the, uh, the year in which the, the legislation was passed. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the most significant civil rights legislation passed since Reconstruction, and it prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and state and municipal facilities. So when you think about the Jim Crow South and public life, you think about the signs that told black people where to go, the, the colored signs over the drinking fountains and the entrances to movie theaters, the white signs. Um, the Civil Rights Act took those signs down and uh, it prevented discrimination. It, 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 it basically opened up public life to African-Americans. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 also barred, and this is a very important uh, part of it, Title, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act barred federal funds for institutions that promoted or endorsed segregation. And the bill also prohibited discrimination in hiring and employment, and it created the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to investigate workplace discrimination. And President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Bill 
um, just hours after it was over, overwhelmingly approved in the House of Representatives uh, by a lopsided vote. Uh, and, and Johnson signed the bill live on national television, and he said, let us close the springs of racial poison. Let us lay aside irrelevant differences and make our nation whole. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So while you have the rise in the black middle class, a third of the black population enjoys some social mobility, there's another third of the black population that remains mired in poverty. Those are the conditions that lead to the problems of police brutality that we still see today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed just looping back to Martin Luther King very briefly, we've had a couple of questions um, about his his death. Um, particularly interesting is one from Lisa Keown, who asks, how did the world respond? Well, I mean, first, we have to talk about the response in the United States. You know, well over 100 cities immediately after his death was announced were engulfed in unrest and fires. And these are um, outbursts, explosions of outrage among many African Americans. And a lot of the damage and the the rioting and the arson was confined to African American neighborhoods uh, and sometimes targeted, you know, white-owned businesses within African-American neighborhoods. Um, Internationally, there were, um, you know, um, obviously condemnation in the world press, um, you know, a sense that American society was unraveling and deteriorating into violence. Um, African-Americans abroad, you know, you you did have African-American expatriate communities in a number of European cities. Uh, and in Africa, organized memorial services wherever they were, um, in London, Paris, uh, uh, Munich, Berlin, uh, Nigeria, etc. So, um, obviously, Dr. King's assassination was devastating for the movement. And it's really important to note that Dr. King was always uh, a very unpopular figure, even a hated figure, um, in some segments in the white community. Um, when Dr. King moved the, um, the movement, the, the civil rights movement, to northern cities to address the, the sort of the, the, the more deeper problems of structural racism in northern cities like Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Um, Dr. King marched, led a march against housing segregation in Chicago in 1966, and he was greeted by 
an angry, um, heckling mob of whites who threw rocks. And Dr. King was actually hit in the head with a rock. After that experience, he said that after all of those marches and civil rights campaigns in the South, that he had never experienced a level of hatred and hostility and ugliness uh, that he experienced in Chicago. So Dr. King um, was, for a time, considered the acknowledged leader by, you know, by the liberal establishment and by the Kennedy and Johnson administration, was considered uh, the, the, the figurehead of the civil rights movement. But when Dr. King uh, started to demand economic justice, when he started to mobilize around those issues, when he opposed the, the U.S. war in Vietnam in 1967, he became a pariah uh, with the white establishment. Um, he had entree. He could, he could meet with President Johnson, you know, particularly in the run-up to the, uh, the, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But uh, Dr. King was shunned by the establishment, by the uh, mainstream U.S. press, even shunned by prominent leaders in the civil rights movement. And, uh, and we, we, we look back on Dr. King with uh, a certain amount of nostalgia, which really forgets the extent to which he was hated, certainly hated by people in law enforcement and certainly hated by the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who um, opposed the civil rights movement and uh, opened up uh, surveillance, um, illegal surveillance on Dr. King and other civil rights leaders and organizations. We've had a question in about that, actually, from Johnny H., who says, how sinister was that program under Hoover? Well, Hoover had for a long time opposed the civil rights movement. He was a racist. He, he opposed it on racist grounds, but he he had he he was unable to see the civil rights movement as a just cause. Hoover was overwhelmingly concerned with communism, the threat of communist subversion. Uh, it's important to note that the civil rights movement coincided with the Cold War struggle against the Soviet Union. And Hoover, um, in his many years as the, the head of the FBI, and certainly with the, the onset of the Cold War, was obsessive in his search for subversives and communists and communist sympathizers. And Hoover was convinced that communists had infiltrated the civil rights movement and that African-Americans, you know, it, it didn't really have a, a valid... <laughs> Uh, case to make for uh, ending segregation and freedom. And so Hoover was very fearful of the civil rights struggle and civil rights leaders morphing into a larger struggle for economic justice. And in, in a uh, notorious memo that inaugurated the, 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 the counterintelligence program, which the FBI used to, um, to infiltrate and undermine civil rights and black power organizations, as well as anti-war organizations, um, Hoover warned of the rise of a black messiah. And initially, when King was alive, 
Hoover saw King as that messiah. And King was, in fact, you know, shifting the movement towards a larger struggle against poverty and uh, for economic justice. With King removed from the scene, uh, Hoover uh, turned his attention to other emergent African-American leaders who might, um, f- who might uh, live up to this notion of being a messiah that could unite black and white um, movements for social justice. And so the COINTELPRO, uh, uh, which was a counterintelligence program devoted to uh, disrupting, uh, undermining these African-American uh, organizations and their leaders, um, really involved not only this kind of disinformation and surveillance to pit members of these, of, of these organizations against each other, uh, to pit organizations against each other. Um, the Black Panther Party was, was pitted against other sort of uh, black power cultural nationalist organizations by COINTELPRO. Um, COINTELPRO also involved the cooperation between local, state, and federal law enforcement to target black organizations like the Black Panther Party. And so in 1968 and 1969, you have a bloody uh, campaign, uh, a war of attrition being waged against Black Panther Party activists in a number of cities uh, with uh, many uh, Panthers killed uh, and many arrested. So the COINTELPRO um, FBI program really disrupted the civil rights movement. And when you ask about the demise of civil rights organizations like the Black Panther Party, or at least their diminished influence, the FBI um, uh, tactics of infiltration and, and subversion of these programs is a big part of the answer. Which leads into the next question um, from Cassidy Kazo Karen, who says, who played a bigger role in preventing civil rights, powerful people, the law, organizations, and so on? And I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Well, you know, I've already talked about Southern segregationist leaders, um, people like George Wallace, but you also had other really not- notorious figures segregationist senators like Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. There were many, many in Congress uh, and in uh, state houses, many outspoken enemies of civil rights. Uh, And they often discredited or tried to demonize the cause of civil rights by saying that um, the movement had been infiltrated by communists. And so um, there's, there's a lot of this Cold War anti-communism and far right-wing uh, organizations like uh, the John Birch Society that, um, that really um, launched this massive propaganda campaign against the civil rights movement. Throughout the South in 1957, you could see these bull- billboards of Dr. King and Rosa Parks sitting in the front row of a a gathering of civil rights and labor and peace activists at this famous uh, organization in uh, Tennessee, the Highlander Folk School. And they were basically saying that these billboards labeled Dr. King uh, as attending this quote-unquote communist training school. So 
Um, a big part of the opposition to civil rights from the white South and from segregationists uh, really sort of played up this notion of the communist threat. You also had, um, really from top to bottom in white Southern society, opposition to civil rights. Organizations throughout the South called white citizens councils put out this hostile propaganda against the movement, claiming that the civil rights movement was going to lead their daughters into being seduced by black men, uh, which invoked the, 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 the long-time um, um, uh, taboo of sex between black men and white women in the South, which was, uh, you know, uh, was used to, to, to instantly discredit and demonize any kind of demands for equality in the South. This was also a period where you had uh, cultural change in the form of the rise of rock and roll in the 1950s. And um, rock and roll was popular among youth, uh, black and white youth in the, the urban North and including the South. Uh, this was the time, of course, when Elvis, the, the, the heyday of Elvis Presley. And Elvis Presley, of course, was very much inspired by uh, black music in, in Memphis. Uh, and um, so the white citizens' councils, realizing that their youth were, um, were enjoying black music and African-American culture, um, issued these handbills warning white parents, don't let your children listen to Negro music. Don't let your children buy Negro records. Um, and, you know, even into the uh, 1960s, you know, when the Beatles came to the United States and did their first tour of the South in 1964, they confronted segregated seating and they... Um, they protested it, and they um, before they discovered that they were going to have to play uh, a concert in Jacksonville, Florida, that had segregated seating, and they just basically said, we're not going to do it. Uh, and they stood their ground, and this was the first non-segregated public event in Jacksonville. Uh, but then they were shrewd enough to put a rider in their contract saying that they would never play for segregated gatherings. Of course, the Beatles in taking that public stand, made themselves enemies of the extremist elements in the South, the Ku Klux Klan. And of course, John Lennon didn't help things by uh, saying uh, in an interview that he thought that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Of course, that really led the white South and sort of the, the pro-segregation Christian fundamentalist element to, to uh, d destroy all the Beatles records in a bonfire. So who played a bigger role in resisting civil rights? I think, you know, you have to acknowledge the Ku Klux Klan uh, and, uh, and other domestic terrorists and vigilantes uh, in, in, in really um, brutally opposing uh, segregation. When um, a civil rights organization called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organized an effort to... Um, to uh, pursue uh, voting rights uh, activism and voter registration among African Americans in Mississippi, um, they invited. They had a, they, their program, Freedom Summer, invited many 
white northern uh, middle-class college students to come to the South, come to Mississippi to help them organize. And they did this um, out of a, a, a calculated understanding that their efforts were not gaining much traction or publicity in the national press because it was a predominantly African-American-led effort. Um, there were white activists in the organization, white organizers, but um, SNCC realized that by bringing the sons and daughters of the white establishment to the South, that was going to get the that was going to focus national attention on their cause. And the program had barely started. Freedom Summer had barely started when three protesters, three um, civil rights workers disappeared. Um, two of them white, um, one a longtime core activist, uh, Michael Schwerner, uh, one uh, a longtime African-American activist named James Cheney, and the third, a volunteer from uh, New York City uh, who had just come down to the South named Andrew Goodman. They disappeared, and before all of the, the white Northern volunteers some African-American as well, had gone to the South, the leaders of SNCC knew that the Klan had probably murdered those, um, those three activists, and their bodies were found weeks later. So the Klan was involved in um, these violent efforts to disrupt civil rights activists. There was also, um, along with the Klan, which was, you know, a kind of a secret vigilante uh, organization, there were um, state and secret state intelligence agencies like the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. We didn't discover that this commission, which was devoted to gathering surveillance and spying on civil rights activists uh, and devoted to the, uh, the objective of preventing school desegregation, preventing civil rights. We didn't discover that, the, that, that this organization existed until its archives were declassified in 1994. But they conducted, you know, the people working for the commission would take photographs of um, civil rights activists, blacks and whites, um, and uh, they would... Um, intervene to have these people um, lose their jobs or, um, you know, have violence directed, you know, or threat threatened against their family members. So this was an attempt to intimidate uh, civil rights activists. And, you know, I mentioned before J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the director of the FBI, who conducted surveillance on Dr. King and other civil rights leaders and organizations. Obviously, a key component of the protests that are happening around the world now is police uh, violence and police brutality. Has that always been a feature of this story? You know, that's a really um, interesting question. Police brutality was front and centre in um, the resistance to civil rights demonstrators, uh, marchers, activists in the South. And you saw the, the police brutality represented the, the most vicious and ugliest aspect of the system of white supremacy. And you saw police brutality on view to the nation's shame 
in Birmingham, Alabama, with you know the um, the sicking of of dogs and the uh, the high pressure hoses on peaceful demonstrators in Birmingham, and you saw police brutality um, in on, you know on full display, sickeningly, in the response to peaceful demonstrators, uh, voting rights marchers in Alabama on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you know, in Selma, Alabama. And Alabama state troopers um, just rushed these peaceful, a line of peaceful marchers, you know, couldn't have been more than a few dozen of them. Um, Officers mounted on horseback, you know, just just ran into them. They, uh, They, you know, tear gas was fired at them. And many of these state troopers rain blows on the protesters with batons. And this was all captured on the, you know, in news footage that ran uh, in, uh, on, on the national news broadcasts. And this created, this violence created an outcry that led to the massive voting rights march, the Selma to Montgomery march in 1965 that had 25,000 uh, Participants, many of them whites, many of them coming from all over the country and all over the world to take part in that march, um, led by Dr. King and other civil rights leaders. So police brutality was kind of front and center uh, as as the, uh, the 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 repressive force that was being mobilized uh, of, of violence being mobilized against civil rights activists. But the issue of police brutality was not as prominent in the civil rights movement as one would think. Of course, police brutality existed in the North. It was the bane of African-Americans' existence in these northern cities. And there were a few spokespersons who talked about the problem of police brutality to try to sort of um, to dislodge northern whites from a sense of moral complacency uh, that racism really problems of racism didn't really exist in the north. You know, northern whites, many northern whites, could claim, could plead innocent and say, "Oh, you know, the the south is the the place where you have the real racists." But you had people like James Baldwin, the author and novelist, and Malcolm X calling attention to um, racism in the north. Uh, particularly manifested in police brutality. James Baldwin talked about the uh, the police in Harlem, where he grew up, as an occupying force. And, of course, Malcolm X had tried to mobilize resistance to police brutality when uh, Malcolm X, of course, was the leader of uh, the Black Muslim movement or the Nation of Islam. And when police attacked and killed... Uh, a um, a member of the Nation of Islam in Los Angeles, uh, Malcolm X wanted to um, publicize this event and demanded justice for um, the man who was killed, a man named uh, Ronald Stokes. Um, so you had a few people talking about the issue of police brutality. Um, by the time you get around to the Black Panther Party, uh, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which was founded in Oakland in 1966, was an organization that was committed to racial, just, racial and economic justice, but th- uh, I think they really sort of 
gained a lot of attention and notoriety and popularity among African-Americans for their forthrightness in challenging police brutality. Um, The Black Panthers would have armed groups of members of the organization patrol the cities uh, and looking patrol African-American neighborhoods looking for police who were engaged in stops of African-Americans and potential mistreatment uh, of of African-Americans. And they um, made it clear that they were opposed to police brutality. uh, And and really, they did so in these all-American terms of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which, which, you know, sort of gives all Americans the right to keep and bear arms. Of course, the Black Panther Party's um, very um, direct challenge to the unaccountable power of uh, police forces led to uh, confrontations with, with police, gun battles, and, uh, and uh, violence. And eventually, uh, you know, the FBI got involved and uh, was worked with local and state law enforcement to... Um, to bring the, the full brunt of, of state violence, the, the, the state's monopoly on violence, to bear against the Black Panthers. This is a question from Google. How successful was the civil rights movement? Well, I mean, I, I think you have, to, you have to acknowledge that the civil rights movement was, uh, was successful in that it transformed American society. It outlawed discrimination in the South and public life. It made it possible for African-Americans to vote. And so that really, for the first time, um, created true liberal democracy in the United States. You couldn't call it a liberal democracy when huge swaths of the population were denied the right to vote. And you know, the, 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 the civil rights movement really sort of challenged these deep-seated notions of white supremacy and to a large extent put the force of the federal government um, behind enforcing civil rights. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 really toppled the racial barriers that kept kept African-Americans from working in a number of uh, occupations and industries. And so you can really sort of point to the civil rights movement and see that um, it created a substantial amount of economic progress for African-Americans in the South. Um, The civil rights movement and later the Black Power movement um, led to the desegregation of public higher education, public universities, and it led to the opening up of, you know, the, uh, the, the northern uh, uh, universities that, you know, before the civil rights movement had uh, just a minuscule number of African-American students and even women students. And so the civil rights movement um, really opened the doors of access for social mobility for many African-Americans. And you could also say that the civil rights movement inspired other movements in its wake. The women's liberation movement, 
the gay liberation movement, um, and uh, in even the um, the black feminist movement, which in many respects is a precursor to the Black Lives Matter movement. So I, I think that one can go on and on about the transformations of the civil rights movement. But I guess in the end, you would have to say that that success was mixed because the unfinished business of the civil rights movement was the demand for economic justice led by Dr. King, led by um, other civil rights activists and black power activists and the Black Panthers and other civil rights organizations. And um, that was the, the deferred dream of the civil rights movement, that um, the white backlash to civil rights activism in the North, the inability to really sort of dislodge the, the sort of generations of discrimination in the labor market and in housing really led to, um, you know, just the, just the, the um, entrenched disadvantage of African-Americans in the North. And also the civil rights movement coincided with the moment of the contraction of the U.S. economy. It coincided with the moment of deindustrialization and the loss of um, low-skilled, good-paying factory jobs in central cities. So African-Americans were belated arrivals to the, the, the American industrial working class. And just as you have the civil rights reforms in the 1960s and 1970s, the uh, opportunity for these industrial jobs um, just it, it just diminishes in places like Detroit and Cleveland, and you know, which were, which were industrial powerhouses that African Americans had benefited from. And so, um, you have the economic crisis of the 1970s, with you know, stagflation, high uh, unemployment, and high inflation. And African Americans bear the brunt of that and a uh, conservative turn in national politics from the Republican Nixon administration to uh, the Republican Reagan administration. You have massive cuts in federal aid to cities, federal aid to education, and uh, African Americans bear the brunt of that. Even though African Americans are able to win um, the mayoralties, of these major cities, which by the late 1960s and 1970s are um, either majority black or, you know, uh, having a high percentage of African-Americans. You know, many of the white uh, inhabitants of those cities had fled to the suburbs starting in the 1950s, uh, a phenomenon, you know, uh, called white flight, taking with them, um, you know, um, the resources, uh, you know, the, the tax base. Uh, and, and also there's disinvestment by many of these corporations that move their factories and operations out of central cities. So African-Americans are facing, um, you know, shrinking economic opportunities, even as they are gaining uh, political freedoms and, you know, uh, uh, a sense of political empowerment by electing African-American mayors. So when people ask the question of why didn't the civil rights movement bring about true equality, um, I think the, the short answer is that the movement 
was able to achieve formal equality, um, equality before the law, the right to vote, but it was not able to secure for many African Americans uh, economic justice and real economic opportunity. So while you have the rise in the black middle class, um, a third of the black population, you know, uh, enjoys some social mobility. There's another third of the black population that remains mired in poverty. And that those are the conditions that lead to the problems of police brutality that we still see today. That was Kevin Gaines. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next tomorrow when Krista Petley will be discussing the transatlantic slave trade.